hppodcraft.com. What was that you started telling me the other day, about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him again. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is there special about it? inquired Mr. White as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it on the table. "'It had a spell put on it by an old fakir,' said the sergeant major. "'A very holy man. "'He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives "'and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. "'He put a spell on it so that three separate men "'could each have three wishes from it. "'His manners were so impressive "'that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred somewhat. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him the way middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. "'I have,' he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. "'And did you really have three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did,' said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. "'And has anybody else wished?' persisted the old lady. "'The first man had three wishes, yes,' was the reply." I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That was an excerpt from the first chapter of the W.W. Jacobs classic, The Monkey's Paw. And you're joining us here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at HPPodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And uh, we're glad to be back. Yeah, it's exciting to be doing this story. This is kind of an old favorite of mine. I haven't read it in a few years, but I'm excited to get on it. In in Supernatural Horror and Literature, in that introduction that we covered, Lovecraft really briefly touches on this story when he's referring to how writers of varying inclinations nevertheless find themselves once in a while writing a weird tale. It's true that W.W. Jacobs was best known in his time, at least, as a humorist. I think this is probably, though, his most famous work of fiction as far as, you know, standing the test of time. Yeah, this is the thing that everybody remembers or at least has heard of. Nobody has really, heard, well, I'm sure some people have, but most people sure. haven't heard of his other stories. Right, right. So, well, uh, but is there anything, what do we know about him? Well, he was born in London uh, in 1863 to a poor family. He started publishing in the 1890s in satirical magazines, and uh, he was working for the civil service, a post office, savings bank, and he left by 1899 because he was making enough uh, writing. Yeah, I think he did pretty well later. He wrote um, all sorts of novellas. Most of his stories were published in The Strand, which was a really popular magazine, which I believe lasted all the way into the 1950s. Mm-hmm. But that's where he made most of his money is doing these sort of one-off uh, stories for The Strand. Novellas he's known for, one is called At Sandwich Port from 1902, Dialstone Lane, 1904. You know, I, I think he was the kind of guy who wrote really broad characters. Mm-hmm. Actually, he's really he's really famous for a bunch of um, sailors' stories. He had these characters who would... Yes. Among, some of those titles are Captain's All, Sailor's Knots, Night Watches. Basically, they were about these really colorful lower middle class sailors 
who would tell stories about being off right. at sea and lots of different things, but they were also kind of idiots. A lot of his characters seem to have that kind of Ralph Cramden quality where they're schemers, you know, big dreams, but things don't quite work out for them. Big dreams, limited intelligence. The the characters he's famous for, Ginger Dick, Sam Small, and Peter Russet, who were in Night Watches. <laughs> Sailors who came back from a long voyage have lots of money, and then they say, okay, we're going to enjoy, you know, our time ashore all these different ways, but all the people that were in the Dockland in London would pretty soon, like, figure out ways to get them to give up their money in different ways. Con them, scan them, or yeah, just yeah. make them buy lots of booze or whatever. <laughs> right. These stories aren't anything like Tom of Finland kind of things, right? What's that? You don't know who, who Tom of Finland is? No. <laughs> I, meant, I meant that to be as kind of an in-joke for you and I, but now that you don't know who Tom of Finland, he's an artist uh, that I think he drew mostly in the 50s and maybe 60s, yeah. and it's uh, homoerotica. Oh, of, of sailors and bikers and <laughs> oh, I know what you're talking about. They have now. very like they're very rosy cheeked and look very happy, but they have yeah. uh, ridiculously large right genitalia, genitalia, and they're, <laughs> they're very buff and muscular guys. And it's yeah, they're, they're kind of they're very comical. They're, I don't know how mm. anybody could take them seriously or find them ironic, but you know, teach their own. <laughs> no, I don't think he was into any of that. The Monkey's Paw was, was in a collection of short stories called The Lady of the Barge, which was right. from 1902. And the story has been in approximately 70 collections since then. 70? 70? Yeah, 70. Wow. And I would think more than that even. I, and you had mentioned in the last episode that you were familiar with it from The Simpsons. Right, yeah. It was parodied on there. Mm-hmm. Stephen King wrote about it in The Dead Zone an apt pupil. And and I would say Pet Cemetery is pretty much inspired by this story. Oh, right. Yeah. The theme of it. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for. And even down to some of the things that happen in that book. Anyway, I, I think it's pretty clear, though, when you read this, that Jacobs was a comedy writer, the way that he puts the characters together and, and the things that they do. It almost feels like a sitcom a little bit. It all takes place in their front room. Right, right. Pretty much. There's a lot of theatrical adaptations of the story. I produced one in college. It was really easy to do. And it was exactly like the story because it's already split into three acts. Yeah. You know, it's easy. Lights up, lights down on this one room because all the action takes place in one spot. So uh, why don't we talk about it? Uh, we, we started out with this domestic scene. We've got our character, Mr. White, who's the father playing at chess pretty badly with his grown son, Herbert, while the missus looks on. They're older. They have a, an adult son who uh, yeah. works at the nearby factory. At the top, the father makes a bad move in the chess game, and he's like trying to distract his son so that he doesn't notice. He's kind of got that total schemer, wide-eyed sitcom character kind of feel to him. He, his son does catch it and beats him at it, and then he sort of gets mm-hmm. mad and makes excuses. And But everybody's still in a good mood, and they're they're having a good time, and, and everything's great. And it's a wonderful family, and nothing's yeah. going to go wrong. Everything's <laughs> going to work out great for these people. It does have that feeling. In fact, the only thing that they complain about, uh, Mr. White is complaining about, is that they live so far out. The path out to their place is a bog, and the road is, you know, muddy and, and torrential, and there's only two houses along the road. So he's like, oh, I guess that means they don't have to take care of the property, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mostly he's complaining because he lost that chess, but he does bring that up that kind <laughs> right. of out there. Uh, and then they have a guest, Sergeant Major Morris. No, Sergeant Ma- Major Morris, he, for some reason, do you remember the world of Commander McBrag from Rocky and Bullwinkle? No, is that another um, gay art thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. Did you ever watch Rocky and Bullwinkle? Were you? No, I actually, I'm sorry, oh, I didn't. Okay, I know. I this is one of those things I missed out on. It was one of those segments. You know, there was uh, Peabody and uh-huh. uh, the you know the dog and the time machine and all that stuff. There was all these different kind of segments. One of them was called the World of Commander McBrag, and he was this 
old English guy and he would tell adventures to this other kind of nerdy English guy at a gentleman's oh. club. And he would say, this reminds me of the time I was in Kenya and I had to fight <laughs> 5,000 natives only with a toothpick. And, right. and and then he would tell these kind of very, um, you know, adventures of Baron Munchausen kind of stories where he's, it's way over the top and they're, mm-hmm. they're big and stuff. And at the end, the guy that would listen to it, he would always have a, a pun. Like, so he goes, and I, you know, I killed them all with the toothpick. And then he goes, I guess, sir, that they really got the point. <laughs> and that would be, they would laugh. And that's the end of the, and that's how every one of those were. But the character of Sergeant Major Morris reminds me of Commander McBrag. Oh, I can see it. And they set him up that way. He's, he's the guy that's been over in India and he's seen all sorts of wondrous things and he's going to come back and, and regale everybody with these stories because they're never going to go. So as far as they know, everything he's saying is true. I mean, he's this tall tales Smith kind of guy and he drinks a lot. So they set him down and right away, you know, they've got him at his third glass of whiskey within three sentences of his entrance in, into the house. The opening block of reading that we had at the beginning took, takes place at right this point. Exactly. He's talking a little bit about all of the crazy things that he's, you know, the jugglers and the temples and, and different things that he's seen in India. And then Mr. White is, what was that you were starting to tell me the other day about the monkey's paw? And then he gets into this story well, where it's this paw. And if you have it, which he, by the way, does have it on his person. Yeah. Little paw dried up to kind of a mummy. And if you have it, you can make three wishes. But from the way he says it, it would lead you to believe that maybe those don't work out the way that you want them to. Right. So the warning and the message of the entire story is there right away. The sergeant major takes the monkey's paw and he tosses it into the fire. Yeah, out of, out of nowhere, he just has this moment of like anger towards it and throws it into the fire. Yeah, uh, Mr. Mr. White pulls it out of the fire and, and says, don't, don't, don't do that. No, no, it's an heirloom. It's special. It's Yeah, if it, you don't want it, I'll take it. He, and he warns him. He tries to say, you don't want to get involved in this thing. But he still lets him take it, which I, if I knew what he knew, I would not. <laughs> would not let him have it. Yeah, what do you think motivates him to do that? Maybe he doesn't really like him very much. <laughs> it could be that he doesn't like him very much, or it could be that he just does. He wants to get it away. Maybe there's some something uh, that doesn't allow it to be destroyed and has to be given. I mean, I'm, this is all a conjecture. I'm, it doesn't say anything like this in the story, but maybe that's what what's going on. Well, but it is something because you know I'm a huge fan of the film version of Pet Cemetery, and yes. if you watch that movie, and I guess it's true in the book as well, but. Judd, the neighbor that Fred Gwynn plays, mm-hmm. it's his fault that all of the tragedy befalls the family. Yeah. Just as it is the Sergeant Major's fault right now. And maybe it's just because life is so mundane that if you do have access to magic, even if it's dangerous, you can't help but sharing it with people. I'm not sure. But Judd full well knows. I mean, he's seen a boy get he knows a boy got buried back in that pet cemetery, came yeah. back killed his father, burned the house to the ground. He knows this has happened. And yet he's still like, well, you, know, you need that cat to be resurrected. Let's take him out to that old Micmac burial ground. <laughs> and later he's like, I shouldn't have introduced you to the secret. You know, well, why did you? Why did you do that for a cat? I mean, the cat, the kids will get over the cat. It's not a big deal. Maybe I just didn't think she was ready for the maybe slippers of a man are comfier. <laughs> well, he doesn't say that. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Beer of a man is foamier. That's not what he says. He says, uh, the soil of a man's heart is stonier. Right? right? That's what he says? That is what he says. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Sometimes that is better. Mr. White gives him a couple of bucks for the monkey's paw. They send him off into the night. 
And then he's got the pawn. They're all standing around. Now, Herbert, the son, thinks this is all hilarious. Yeah, he doesn't believe it's real. He thinks it's just kind of a, a fun game that they're they're playing here. Yeah. And he says, well, you know what? Wish for 200 pounds. You know, you could pay off the house. You could do that at, at least because the father is saying, you know, I don't know what to wish for. It seems I've got all I want. He's actually pretty content. So in that yeah. respect, he's not really a, a schemer. No, he's really actually happy with what he has. But the son kind of goads him on to do it. So it's like the son and the father are together two sides of this kind of personality. Right. So he does make the wish. He says, I wish for 200 pounds. Do you ever w wonder what happened to the rest of the monkey or why this particular, I mean, I know a holy man did something to it, but what's up with the rest of the monkey? I don't know if somebody had said, here's a monkey's paw. If you have this, you get three wishes. I'll be like, you keep that. I'm going to go rub a whole monkey and get <laughs> 90 wishes. Well, I got a theory. I think that the monkey might've actually been some kind of wizard himself. <laughs> <laughs> he's so infused with magic that even if you get his paw you can you have get wishes. wishes exactly like his he was called peanut the monkey wizard yeah and he had a little like do you think he had that had kind a little, of cone hat yeah he had a cone hat and with stars uh, and the moons on exactly it. and you'd give him a date and then he would you know cure your leprosy <laughs> you should write like a 1000 page backstory to this <laughs> About Peanut? About Peanut, the wizard monkey. Peanut's <laughs> hand, after he makes the he uh, the father wishes for 200 pounds, Peanut's hand moves. Mr. White screams and drops it. And they're like, what is it? He goes, it moved. And it's like, oh, God, that's horrible. That is pretty nasty. Herbert's like, well, I guess since you, uh, since you made that wish, you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed later. And something horrible squatting on top of your wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains, which was kind of a scary thing for him to have said. Yeah. And then he takes off. In the last paragraph of part one, Mr. White is sitting there. It says, he sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. Oh, the simian face he saw was Peanut. It was. He saw Peanut <laughs> in the fire. <laughs> You gotta uh, write that book. The long-awaited prequel to the Monkey's Paw. <laughs> long-awaited. Yeah. People Peanuts. are just going, God, I wish somebody would just write a prequel to the Monkey's Paw. I mean, I, the story's interesting, but, like, there's so many unanswered questions. <laughs> so in part two, mom and dad are, are hanging out. And what time of day is it now? It's, it's the next morning. Yeah. There's uh, everything seems like it was silly the night before. You know, it's yeah. that kind of thing. We're like, oh, God, what were we going on about? It's no big deal. In the light of day, everything, yeah. you know, seems so stupid. And I'm sure Herbert will come home and make fun of this. Yeah, exactly. But then uh, Mrs. White notices that there's this guy that's kind of hanging out in front of the house and he kind of, kind of walks by the gate and then he comes by the gate again and he walks out and he's dressed mm -hmm. really nice. He's dressed in a, a very a silky outfit with a nice hat and everything like that. Yeah. He passes the gate three times before he finally comes in. There seems to be a theme or a rule of threes happening in, in, oh, in the right, story yeah. itself because it's in three sections. There's three wishes. He goes by three times. I mean, if you look for it, you can find it in here. It's pretty clear. And he finally comes in and Mrs. White thinks that maybe this guy, it, maybe the wish did come true and he's some kind of wealthy man that's going to give us some money and she's getting kind of excited by the idea. Right. I, th I always think it's a publisher's clearinghouse. Yeah, right. It's going to be, it's Ed McMahon that's going to show up. <laughs> well, he comes in and she gets him some tea, but he's he's not really saying much at first. And finally, he says he's from the company, uh, Ma and Megan's, where their son works, where Herbert works. 
Yeah. And she's like, what is it? Is anything the matter? And he says, uh, well, and Mr. White is there as well. And the man says, there's been an accident. And he says, well, is he hurt? And he goes, well, he was hurt badly, but he isn't, he's not in any pain right now. And then she says, oh, thank goodness. Thank God for that. And then she realizes what he meant by that. Yeah. And he says, your son was caught in the machinery and he, he was, he was killed. Yeah. And uh, the Mr. White says he was the only one left to us. It is hard. And when he said that, I, well, maybe they had other children that had passed away before. It was just a tiny little detail. Yeah. Made made it extra sad, man. The man delivers the most biting part of the news. I was to say that Moore and Meggins disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand, and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. You know, most of these stories that we've been covering that Lovecraft liked, yeah. they all seem to have some fainting involved in them. Could be, maybe this is a little inspiration for it. There's yeah. some fainting in the yellow wallpaper. I mean, it could be that he made this whole essay about weird tales, but really what he just likes in a story is a good fainting. Part three. The first time I was really aware of The Monkey's Paw, I read it in the novelization of, of The Goonies. You mentioned that on the last episode. Yeah, but that was told more like a campfire tale. And I was surprised in rereading this that some of those aspects were missing. Now, they describe the fact that they're down this long path and kind of out of the way, and there's a gate and you have to come down to their house. Right. But as you're telling this as sort of a ghost story, a campfire story, the teller makes kind of a a big deal out of that. Mm -hmm. The gate opening, like with a creak, and then you hear the person sloshing down the path to the door and then the knock on the door. So they set in that when you kind of tell this as a ghost story, you set that up with this visitor coming. Or actually, you set it up with the sergeant major coming. Then the visitor comes. And then the third time it happens... You can really play with the sound effects and what that growing anticipation is. The story actually doesn't play with that as much as later theatrical versions did and, and the way that it was retold in The Goonies. So, so that was always my, my hmm. perception of it. It's very, almost like a radio drama, very based on sound. And, and part three, this is a, a few days have passed after this has happened and they, they had the funeral. So it's been 10 days after he died and they are just beside themselves with grief. This is, yeah. this is horrible. They're really, really sad. Yeah, they have a nice bit of characterization there. You know, the story is pretty bare bones. It's really just telling you the tale without yeah. too much interference from the author. But I did think there was a nice bit of writing there when it says the old man woke suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. And then there was the sound of sub- subdued weeping coming from the window. It just really paints a nice, dark, sad picture in that tiny moment. You know, I just thought it was nice. Um, But yeah, she, she, the reason she's up is she's upset, but then she suddenly remembers the monk, the monkey's paw. She's like, we have two wishes left. Let's wish for him to be alive again. And of course, Mr. White is like, no, no, it's a coincidence that that happened at all. We shouldn't mess with it. Of course, he's going to say that because he doesn't want to take responsibility for that. Yeah, who would? I mean, that's awful. It's horrible. And he just says, don't, it's silly that we even thought that. It's just, just, leave it be. Yeah, but she is not having it. She says, go get it and wish. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides he, I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? 
if he were to come to life, it would not be a pretty sight. Yeah, he would be a gross zombie guy. Well, I mean, that's an assumption he's making right there because yeah, because that is an obviously supernatural. See, this is a point where I, I have a point of contention in this story mm. because in the beginning, the sergeant major says. When things happen, they seem like they could be coincidences. So everything yeah. should be in the realm of possibility. Now, mm-hmm. the fact that he comes back from the dead and he's like a zombie dude, then yeah. that totally breaks the rules of the monkey's paw where it should be because people can't come back from the dead, especially after they've been ripped apart by a machine. Well, that might be perhaps where it enters into the realm of the weird tale, because we actually don't know. We don't know. Well, OK. OK, so let's finish this up and then talk about that for a second, because I agree with you that that kind of was kind of. I was thinking about that as well. Well, uh, she convinces him to do it. She says, wish father says it's foolish and wicked. And she orders him to do it. Mm-hmm. So he puts the paw in his hand. He says, I wish my son alive again. And he throws it down again. Obviously it moved yeah. in his hand. And then we get to this sort of horrific part of the story. They're just waiting through the night. And then suddenly they hear a knock at the door. Yeah. Now, as I said before, when you do it, when it's kind of the ghost story thing, first they hear the gate creak open, you know, mm-hmm. then they hear this kind of dragging sound along the path and you kind of characterize that, you know, and then whatever gets there and starts knocking. And the, the way I heard it, the knocking starts and at first it's light and then it gets more and more pronounced and then it sounds like something throwing its entire mass against the door. And I always liked that build because you've got the mother and father arguing about whether they should open it or not. And right. kind of struggling with each other. And she's trying to get all the locks undone. And he's trying to find the monkey's paw because when he dropped it, he didn't know where it went. Right. So they have a little of that. But I, I, every time I'd heard it before, it gets more and more and more dramatic. But it's a wonderful struggle there. Yeah. And, and you're at the edge of your seat because what are you going to see when she opens that door? She's trying to get the lock undone. And, he, and uh, he's saying, for God's sake, don't let it in. And she's like, you're afraid of your own son. Let me go. I'm, and she says, I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. And there's another knock and another knock. And then the old woman with a sudden wrench broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice strained and panting. The bolt! she cried loudly. Come down! I can't reach it! But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If only he could find it before the thing outside got in. Perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. So that's the end of the story. It is the end and such a cool ending. I remember being being blown away the first time I heard it or read it in accounting of it that they don't show you anything. In fact, I think that's what Lovecraft thinks about it as a weird tale because nothing supernatural really happens at all. I mean, is there a coincidental way that this wish could have come true? The argument you were making a second ago that and, and the sergeant major early says things happen and it seems like it's a coincidence. 
Right. Yes. This would be if he came out of the grave. That's not a coincidence. That's no, a supernatural no. event. But is there any way for it wasn't actually him that fell into the machine? It was somebody mm. else because they couldn't recognize his body. Right. You know, so, oh, it wasn't me, father. It was Bill who took over my shift and he right. was in early in the day before anybody else came in and he, he was mm. and he wore my coveralls and, yeah. you know, something like that. And, and I've been asleep like, down in the break room for the last 10 days and didn't even realize anything was going on. <laughs> or or I I knew that the money was going to come or you know, maybe he had some. I don't know. There could have been a way that it would have been not supernatural that it yeah. could have played out. And then maybe the the bad end of it would be his son would have got arrested for fraud and then they would have gone to jail or something to that effect. I don't know. But it, the rules change halfway through the story where it says he does say things are going to be a coincidence, but then if he's a zombie Herbert, then right. it's not, it's not a coincidence anymore. It's just, it's obviously a supernatural thing, but we never do see it. We don't know what happened. So maybe my crazy story or something like it could have happened. Who knows if yeah. there's a big zombie monster at the door? Maybe not at all. Yeah, it's, well, your imagination certainly goes crazy with some horrific zombie monster outside of that door, all twisted up. And I think that's why it's a weird tale, is because mm -hmm. it's all of your imagination. There's only a, a mere suggestion of what it could be. Yeah. And then from that, you, you your mind just goes running. And, and the fear that you feel is... It's just something against nature, something that couldn't possibly happen. Exactly. Because you never are able to quantify it. It is that that touch of the unknown. Yeah. I mean, the fear of the unknown. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It works as a fable. And, and then it also works as a, as a good horror story. It's a good weird tale. Yeah. This one is so um, tightly woven. It feels like into the fabric of canonical literature. Absolutely. Seems like everybody knows the story. And it really is that it's a template for a great, well-paced campfire story got a good scare at the end just the economy of the writing as well it's really short he gets so much in that story so much emotion and so much of a feeling and it's it's great it's a classic and it's a little more than i guess the pat uh, message is be careful what you wish for but i don't know if that's as much of a message i, I feel like it's more you can't there's no easy way to get things no you can't just wish and then suddenly be wealthy or there's a hard path the easy path brings with it suffering it's a gamble you know if, if you risk things then the risk is going to be folly generally yeah yeah i mean that's how exactly. casinos make all their money <laughs> people right. generally lose and and that's just the way it is but people always hope that maybe i will get the, the step up on them <laughs> vegas cracks me up in, in in that everybody participates like it's not just vegas you want to pretend that these people and there's things they do you know where you can't get out of the casino it's difficult they don't let you know what time of day it is there's no clocks you know everything is very satanically organized within those casinos <laughs> but i think it's also the way that people are people self-report you know there are a lot of people who win money and they're walking around the casino talking about it obviously because they've had good fortune yep. the people that lose money don't say a word they're just yep. walking off white face to the shrimp buffet you know and yep. and so we help each other to create an atmosphere in which it seems like everybody's a winner yeah. And that's not just Vegas. I mean, that goes with so much of life. And even on a smaller scale, people that gamble will often brag about their wins, even though they've lost much more that day than they've actually won. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I even feel like social networking two way is like that kind of model. Um, it's the rare person who goes on to those networks and says, you know what, I'm just having I mean, some people do, but day to day life is gone away from those kinds of things. But people who are having good fortune are apt to self-report on your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever. So I think there's this 
horrible negative effect from those social networks where people look at them and they go, everybody's having a wonderful life but me. I mean, look at the food that they're taking great, you know, retro <laughs> pictures of. Everybody's eating better. Everybody's having more fun. I actually think those things serve to depress people more than they Aww. make people feel good. I like the story a lot. I don't really have too much more to say about it because it's so, it's not, it's not a very complicated story. No, it isn't. It's, no, it's, it's simple, it's sweet, and uh, it's, it's really great. I recommend everybody giving it a read. It's, like I said, free. You can download it and it's short. So, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you're done with it. Yeah, yeah. And you're a richer yeah. person for having read it. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing better than simplicity, really. I like something that works on a lot of levels, but just a really great, simple story is, mmm, tastes good. All right, with that, I'd like to thank our reader today, which we haven't uh, thanked or even mentioned uh, yet in yes. this episode, uh, Paul <laughs> McLean, who is of Yog Sothoth fame. He is doing the reading for us, and he's also letting me record yet again because my internet isn't hooked up at home yet. I'm over at Innsmouth Studios, and I just want to mention that in my hand, I'm holding The Express Diaries mm -hmm. uh, by Nick Marsh. Now, I'm holding this book because Paul produced it. This is a novelization of... They do live role-playing game recordings. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a big thing to do at Young Sothoff. And it's a Call Cthulhu story, the uh, horror on the Orient Express. And then they wrote a novel based on it. And it's yeah. a hardcover. They did like a um, fundraiser, like a Kickstarter thing. Yeah, They got all the money together. They did it. It's a beautiful book. It, it has all these really amazing illustrations and uh, cutouts and things like that. I haven't read it yet. But I'm, I've read some other stuff that Nick has done, and it's great. And uh, it's available on their website. We'll put a link, and I, I recommend it. Just for, just looking at it. Visually, it's beautiful. Next week, I'll tell you if it's if it's good or not. <laughs> okay, cool. And, and everybody should pick up that book. I can't wait to have a look at it myself. Next week, we're going to cover a story that we talked about a couple weeks ago called The Upper Birth by F. Marion Crawford. I don't know anything about it, really. It's from the 1890s. It's another public domain uh, thing. You can see it online or you can get it on a Kindle. The Upper Birth by F. Mary Crawford. I'm looking forward to reading that and discussing that. Yeah. And then the week after that for our free show, I had mentioned that Dickens wrote some ghost stories. Lovecraft mentioned it in the intro to Supernatural Horror, but he didn't specify any one of them. I had talked about this courtroom ghost story that he wrote that I was familiar with, but so many people wrote in to say, no, 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 you've got to read The Signal Man, which is a classic Dickens ghost story. Uh, so I haven't read it, even though a lot of people seem to be aware of it. Neither have I, so let's do it. We're going to do that one for our free show. So coming up next is The Upper Birth by F. Marion Crawford. After that, The Signal Man by Charles Dickens. And that's going to be the next two. Both of those are free, so I hope you'll read them in preparation for it. I guess we probably should. We should as well. I, I, one last thing i want to mention is my kickstarter trans reality is it hit its goal congratulations chris that's yes, so I'm awesome man i'm so excited i can't wait to keep working on it and finish it and, and do all the things i need to do to make a completed graphic novel yeah. so uh the kickstarter is still going on for another week so if you want to get in on it and buy a copy or somehow participate in some of the higher level stuff you still have time to do it because uh it's not it's not fully written i'm, I'm gonna make some changes because some people at level 75 bucks, if you put in 75 bucks, your name will be in the story somewhere. Either it'll be like the name of a company or the name of a, a character, whatever. So I'm going to have to go back and do a little finagling to get all these people's names into the story somehow. Or you can even, if a higher level, you can actually be in the story visually as well. But that's it. It's going to happen no matter what. Yep. But if you want to be a part of it, you still can. There's only about a week left. All right. Check it out. We got some time left. So please uh, go over to that Kickstarter. Check it out. Give them some dough. Try and get your way into the book. 
um, or just uh, ensure that it's going to have a larger print run, which would be a little more money would help with that, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, that's all we've got for this week. Uh, check us out next week for The Upper Berth. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Show.